a few weeks of reminder lessons. And we do that from time to time here. The stuff that we went over the last three, four weeks has not been new material, unless you happen to be new to the community. The point of those lessons was to review and to reinforce the importance of integrating a series of ancient pathways, ancient practices into our daily lives. So if you're new, you might not have seen this diagram, but if you've been around for any length of time, you've seen it many times. When we distill the body of ancient wisdom about how best to awaken our souls to divine life within us, it boils down to a series of practices that we have categorized into these four quadrants. Communal practices, contemplative practices, learning practices, and serving practices. These four categories of spiritual practice will broaden the net in our lives with which we capture spiritual experience. These four categories of spiritual practice will invite us into a depth and into a breadth of encounter with divine wisdom, the interior voice, the interior spirit of God, divine truth, divine healing, divine growth. These four categories of practice have been well-trodden through the centuries. People go when they want to awaken to the experience of divine life. This is where people go when they want to awaken from the false self-slumber that besets us so deeply. And with these ancient practices so much a part of the spiritual life that we pursue here at NRCC, from time to time we stop what we're doing as we did these last three weeks and we go over these uh, important practices. Before we stopped this time, we were doing a series of lessons clustered around the question, can we still be Christian in the quantum era? We looked about what it means to experience Christian salvation in the quantum era, what it means to be thinking about the afterlife in the quantum era. And then these last Sunday, three Sundays, we talked about meditation, we talked about the Enneagram, we talked about the importance of self-awareness and self-disclosure. Robin went through that last week. And so... Having given these times to reminding ourselves these last three weeks, I think we're ready now to return to a cluster of lessons that we've done around that singular question. What does it mean to be Christian in the quantum era? Can we still be Christian in the quantum era? Has this new worldview that is so profoundly upon us in our generation, in our lifetimes, has it pushed the traditional or the basic Christian narrative out to the fringe of any kind of a meaningful life? And so, as I mentioned in the announcements a moment ago in July, we'll do that tough questions about religion lunch, and we'll focus on God. And each one of these lunches focuses on some dimension, but of all of them, the core rethinking process really begins with how it is that we imagine God, how we think about God, what is the framework that rests down deeply inside of us when we are imagining God. I've said this many times, both here on Sundays and in the book, that one of our most ancient truths is that God cannot be contained. That's what the word transcendent means. God cannot be captured in a picture that we can draw. 
God cannot be captured in a statue that we can fashion. So, as far back as our Hebrew texts, we forbade one another to even try. No graven images. That's how the old words went. God cannot be contained in any kind of physical depiction, and God cannot be contained in any construct that we create in our own minds. God cannot be limited to an image that we capture in our heads. This is a pretty huge implications as we think about moving forward into this new worldview in which we live because that means that doctrine of transcendence or that doctrine of ineffability. That means that trying to get our doctrines about God right, trying to get our doctrines about God complete or precise, or trying to get our thoughts about God exact. This is a fool's errand. It is never going to work. I got an email earlier this week reminding me of, just in passing, of the Pew Research study that cited that there are now 41,000 different Christian denominations. And that uh, statistic surprised me because I had read that Pew Research study about five years ago. And when I read it five years ago, it was (laughs) 38,000. And then I got this email. I thought, wow, it's gone from 38,000 to 41,000 just in those five years. And so not only are we unable to agree on the precise workings of God with one another and splitting from one another because we can't, the pace at which we are disagreeing from one with one another and dividing ourselves from one another is accelerating across the planet. We have noted together that the divine can be thought of as forest and the human can be thought of as tree. Forest can contain tree, but by its very nature, tree cannot contain forest. So, Consequently, because of that great doctrine of the transcendence of God that is at the bedrock of our tradition, the ancient texts insisted that the greatest of sins was not atheism. The greatest of sins was not sex and drugs and rock and roll. The greatest of sins was not doubt about God or disbelief in God. The greatest of sins in the ancient texts was idolatry. Idolatry was taking the irreducible divine and trying to reduce it down to something that would fit in the scope and fit in the scale with which we are comfortable. If I can take the divine and get it down into a little totem or a little icon that I can carry around in my pocket, that's the right scope and scale for me. I can hold on to that. That was the greatest of sins. If I can get God to fit into some world, some thought that makes me comfortable, then in a sense God becomes predictable because I can tell you what God does and I can tell you what God doesn't do because I've got God fit into this slot in my mind. And once I've got God predictable, in a sense God becomes controllable. Because what I do then is I figure out God so that I can anticipate God's next move. And if I can anticipate God's next move, then I can work with my anticipation and I can make sure that I do the right thing to get God on my side so that I can get God working for me. And that, the ancient text said, was the greatest sin. The greatest sin was to limit God to something that gave us 
the control. The greatest sin was to settle for a God that didn't take anybody by surprise, didn't break any of the rules that we had figured out. The greatest sin was to construct a divine reality that was no bigger than our own imaginations. The greatest sin was to construct a divine reality that did not stretch us past the bounds of our own worldview, of our own understanding. That was the highest of sins. Kind of a backhanded way of getting to the sin of arrogance, the sin of hubris. It's a sin of centering our lives on a reality that we construct, centering our lives on a reality that is too small. So, when we tell the Christian story, or for that matter, the Buddhist story, or the Jewish story, or any other spiritual story, when we tell these stories, and in so doing, we fix God into some construct or another, it impacts us. In fact, it diminishes us, it reduces us, and it weakens our spiritual journeys. That's the doctrine of the transcendence of God in a nutshell. What our basic gut instincts about God do to us, what our basic instincts about the nature of ultimate reality do to us, is they determine what we seek in our lives. And it is a truism that I repeat frequently here, what you seek is what you find. What we tell ourselves about the nature of God determines the kind of spiritual experience that we look for. And the kind of spiritual experience that we look for is the kind of spiritual experience that we find. And if we are looking for X, the Y might be present. Because we never looked for it, we never find it. In the book, I suggest that even our most cherished images of God, God as Father, or God as King, or God as bridegroom, or God from the book of Proverbs, the goddess Sophia, wisdom God, even those most cherished and traditional images, while they help us profoundly in some parts of the spiritual journey, they limit us when it comes to the experience of other parts of the spiritual journey. Because the magnitude of the divine cannot be contained in any image or any construct or any thought that we think when we create that construct and then settle in on it, we eliminate all of the other dimensions of a multifaceted, infinitely faceted divine life. And so consequently, the stories that we tell about God are always partial. The stories that we tell about God are always incomplete. And when we insist that they are more than that, They begin to act as a filter through which we experience the spiritual life. And a story that puts God into a box that we can contain, that is an idolatrous story. And if our story is too limited or, more accurately, too precise or too specific, if our God is too contained or too certain or too confident or too definite, that makes the filter just get too tight. It limits the kind of, and it limits the number of things that we look for when we are seeking spiritual insight. It limits the kind of, and it limits the number of things that we look for when we are seeking seeking spiritual experience, or spiritual growth, or spiritual challenges. A specific, accurate, definite view of God eliminates spiritual possibilities. A specific, 
accurate, definite view of God eliminates spiritual opportunities. So back in 2008, Baylor University did a study on the specific views of God that Americans hold. And what they found was quite interesting that some mid to low number of 90%, I think it's 94% of people in our country believe in God, or they did in 2008. But when we drilled more deeply into those numbers, they discovered that we all don't believe in the same God. And the differences between the gods that we believe in has very little to do with the religion with which we're affiliated. Interestingly, there are a lot of Christian people who have more differences in the God that they believe in from other Christians than they do from other Muslims or other Jewish people or other Hindu people. It really had nothing to do with the religion to which we ascribe um, or that we affiliate God. It had more to do with the character that we assigned to God. So that's how we divide ourselves up. We divide ourselves up according to the character that we ascribe to God. And the texture of that study gives some of the landscape of the American religious world, and it goes something like this. Four basic views of God that we Americans believe in. First, we believe, 31% of us, in an authoritarian God. Second, we believe in a benevolent God. That's about 23% of us. We believe in a distant or remote God. That's about 24% of us. And we believe in a critical or a judgmental God. That's about 16% of us. Now, the largest segment uh, of the population that believes in God believes in that first one, the authoritarian God. And the word wrath is the word that is often associated with that God. You've heard the term, the wrath of God. And even though many Catholics hold this view, if not most, it's even more dominant among Protestants especially conservative Protestant groups. The second God, the benevolent God, is, on the other hand, the forgiving friend of sinners. This God is the peacemaker that bridges the gap among peoples and bridges the gap between God and people. This is the God that heals the wounded, that cares for the downtrodden. Third, the distant, remote God is out there somewhere, This is the God that got the ball rolling at the beginning of this universe of ours. But today, this God functions more like a cosmic force, a presence behind the curtain, perhaps. May play another significant role when things begin to wind down near the end, but for the most part, isn't all that involved in the daily affairs of the normal, typical life, the distant, remote God. And then fourth, the critical God or the judgmental God, this God is all about justice. This is the God that has seen the ravages of injustice on the earth. This is the God that has heard the cries of people calling out for wrongs to be made right. This is the God who may seem distant today when people are suffering and when others are getting away with murder, but this God will ultimately make things right in the end. Perhaps this God will make things right by rewarding uh, heaven in the end or punishing with hell in the end. For others, it means that in the end, though it may be unfair and evil to us today, when we get there, we will finally realize that there was a mysterious ultimate plan that ends up culminating in the good for all. Justice will be served. Things will be made right. So those are the four basic categories of God that we Americans believe in. But again, most Catholics and the majority of Protestants 
Most evangelicals and charismatics, most people who went to church or went to Sunday school in the last half of the 20th century, most of those people picked up an internal narrative that was the first. It was the authoritarian God. A stern but ultimately loving father, a demanding but truly righteous king, a fair and reasonable judge. Begin if we take the doctrine of transcendence seriously. If that is the God that you hold in your conscious or unconscious mind, then you will have to configure your experience of God to match your image. Consequently, you will have to configure your spiritual journey in such a way that you are the child trying to please the stern but loving Father. You will have to configure your spiritual life so that you can meet the demands that are set before you by this righteous but exacting king. And you will look for spiritual experiences that will resonate with the laws and the precedents set by the fair but exacting judge. And as we've said so many times before, there are great spiritual riches to be found in all of these images of God, in all of these partial and incomplete ideas about God. When you plumb the depths of them, you find profound spiritual help and assistance for your soul. But there are also great limitations when we hone in on one at the exclusion of others. There are great blind spots that become associated with honing in on one at the exclusion of others. The other thing that the Baylor study documented was a rapidly accelerating shift in our society, moving away from the authoritarian God that is the majority, and this shift has really picked up steam in the last uh, two to three decades, moving away from the stern father, the stern judge, the stern king kind of God, and moving toward some iteration of the benevolent God, that second one. The benevolent God is a whole lot less concerned about dogma, more concerned with making things right for you and for me, while large numbers still believe in heaven and hell between 50 and 75% of Americans, depending, depending on how you configure the question when you ask it, when we drill down into that number and ask some follow-up questions, the number of people who actually think that they will go to hell or that their neighbor will go to hell hovers below 1%. So we don't, while we believe in heaven and hell, we just don't think God's sending anybody there. We've shifted away from the authoritarian God to the benevolent God. In the last couple of decades, the, Ameri the American God has become a great deal less dogmatic, much less stern, much less authoritative, much more caregiving, much more nurturing. Our instincts about God have shifted away from God as father to God as mother, has shifted away from God as judge to God as a country doctor or a benevolent therapist. And God has become much more accepting of diversity, much more open to honest exploration of both the breadth or of a whole breadth of opinion, 
The ways of God have become much more multifaceted, and this allows people to experiment with their spiritual lives, to invent, to interpret, to try and retry and to consider. We as a community, we're doing that. You can afford to do that when your God is less authoritarian. When your God is more benevolent, you can get away with some question asking. You can get away with some doubts and some wondering. You can afford to have these kinds of questions when God is less concerned about doctrinal theological purity and more accepting of diversity. And this shift that we have undertaken, moving away from the authoritarian God to the benevolent God, this has done a great deal of good for a great many religious people. Many of us have undergone this cultural shift personally. Many of us have, over these last decades, moved away from the authoritarian God to the benevolent God. Many of us fear less, and we reflect more. Many of us experiment with our spiritual practices and doctrines in givens that we never would have under the authoritarian God. Many of us have had our spiritual lives deepened by a broader understanding of grace, by a broader understanding of forgiveness. You've heard me say many times, the nature of God is forgiveness the way the nature of sun is shine. That has affected our religious lives. And in many ways, it has been healthy. In many ways, it has been a healing shift that has overtaken our national religious life and our personal religious lives. But again, if we take seriously the doctrine of transcendence, if we try and contain the infinite in our minds, if we create constructs in our minds, even the benevolent God construct, we end up limiting our spiritual lives. Because there were some wonderful, wonderful things that happened under the authoritarian God, things that we have dispatched as we are now moving toward the benevolent one. Under the authoritarian God, we learned about duty, and duty holds a society together. Under the authoritarian God, we learned about sacrifice. We learned about serving others at our own expense. And we learned about staying away from harmful behaviors. We called it holiness. We called it being set apart. We called it striving for a higher life. And even though we might have been motivated by guilt or we might have been motivated by fear or we might have been motivated by shame or some way of following the rules or some such thing, the net effect was that we stayed away from harmful behaviors. And our children were trained to stay away from those harmful behaviors as well. But that's the thing that happens when we try and limit God to any construct. There is good in there, and there are blind spots in there. And we would be foolish not to think that now, as we Americans are moving from the authoritarian God into the benevolent God, that there are not blind spots to be had here as well. Any construct that we hold in our minds about God, benevolent God or otherwise, will ultimately betray us because God will not be contained. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just go to the answers in the back of the book and figure out the once and always true truth about God, 
Wouldn't it be nice if once we knew all the answers in the back of the book, we could configure our lives accordingly? Wouldn't that be nice? But whole generations who have gone before us have tried that. They've gone to a whole bunch of different answer books. They've gone to a whole bunch of different answers in the back. In the first 300 years of our life as a, as a tradition, we tied the answer book to what, the thing, what was said by those who were in a direct lineage from the disciples. That lasted for about 300 years. Other generations settled on the answer book being papal authority that we would hear from the Bishop of Rome or the seat of St. Peter. Still others made the answer book their denominational tradition. This is what was taught to us because we're Episcopal or because we're assemblies or because we're whatever the tradition was. Still other traditions made the answer book the Bible, or at least their group's interpretation of the Bible. And these answers served for a time, but ultimately failed us because our answer books are always ultimately rooted in whatever our current concept of God is. Whatever we think about God, that's how we configure our answers. But the uncontainable nature of the divine requires that every generation, ours included, must come to grips with our blind spots. And our ideas about God, if they get fixed, always create blind spots. Every generation, ours included, is required to learn the single most important spiritual skill there is, and that is discernment. We must learn to discern, which is why the wise among us have come back in every generation and taught us the ancient practices. This is why the wise among us in every generation have come back and taught us to do the things that lead people to discernment. Because we discern better our blind spots and the richness of whatever metaphor for God we are currently using, we do that better when we do it together, when we are engaged in the communal practices. We discern better our blind spots and the richness of whatever metaphor of God we are currently using when we quiet our souls when we are engaged in the contemplative practices. We discern better both our blind spots and the rich texture of whatever metaphor for God we are currently using when we are also engaged in the learning practices, when we are also engaged in the serving practices. Because it is in this, the ancients have taught us, that we determine how to be discerning. These discernment-generating practices, when they are worked into the rhythm of our lives, history has shown us, enhance and deepen our capacity to discern. They give us what our texts say is so important for those on the spiritual journey, having eyes that see and having ears that hear. And so, as we go into these weeks where I hope you are reading the chapters on uh, rethinking our story of God, and as we come to our first Sunday lunch, I hope that you are thinking about those often unconscious instincts that you carry about the nature of God. There are lots of 
challenging constructs in the book to help you think, well, what do I think of that? To help you move past some of the things that might have held you to grapple with and struggle with things that might be too big a stretch for you. But those are a few thoughts, hopefully to prime the question-generating pump as we get ready for our first Sunday Tough Questions About God lunch in July. Next week, I want to move into the broader part of this lesson. I want to talk about what is happening across the planet as more and more communities, just like ours, are trying to grapple with the question, can we be Christian in the quantum era? What is it looking like when these communities are coming to grips with these demands? What are the spiritual themes that are surfacing? So we'll begin that next week. Spirit of God, may we be a discerning people, immersed in the rhythm of the ancient practices, discerning both the riches and the blind spots of any entrenched view that we have of God or the spiritual life. May we be able to navigate the changes being demanded of us during this moment in history. In Jesus' name, amen.